You're listening to Top Traders Unplugged, episode number 034, where I continue my conversation with Luke Van Hoff, founder and CEO of Capital Hedge. This episode is sponsored by Swiss Financial Services. Welcome back to Top Traders Unplugged, where the best traders in the world come to share their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Let's rejoin the conversation with your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. extremely high, it's not going to be extremely low. We know it's going to be probably in that confidence interval. And then you have a better, I think, uh, probability of reaching your objective in terms of what you were hoping for in terms of risk and return. <clears throat> let, me, um, let me try and, 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 and give you a real uh, life example. And, and I want to hear sort of your feedback because I think there are a lot of uh, traders and investors out there who uh, probably have similar experiences. Now, we've done a lot of uh, research uh, in, in, in the strategies that uh, that I've been involved in, and some of it has been in the relatively short-term space. And all I can say is that the research were very robust and uh, no optimization, lots of different markets, and uh, certainly tested across you know different uh, different markets as you suggested, and all the numbers going back you know 15 20 years looked really robust. Then comes along 2010, 11, 12. I don't remember exactly when it is, but there is a time in that period and 13 in particular, uh, as far as I recall, where the performance really changes. Mm-hmm. And I just wonder what it is that you do differently to because it seems to me that you somehow can and i don't know whether it's filtering in order to because some of these models will go for a long time working fine but there tend to come a time in 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 a model's life <laughs> and especially especially in the short-term trading space where a lot of firms would argue that there is uh, you know decay on models life to down to even two years and then they have to come up with something new but maybe that's a different uh, topic but but there tend to come a time where most models will suffer how do you and I don't know whether you, you have been completely, but, but how do you minimize that and, and how do you avoid it uh, still, despite all the things you said about testing it across different markets, even though that's not where you're going to use it? Um, do you use some kind of filtering to avoid the periods where the market structure is just not right for that kind of model? Mm-hmm. Well, that's that's the most intriguing question. I think the honest answer is, most people, and I think all people, they don't know how to filter and how to know when actually a model is degrading mm. so strongly in terms of performance that they should mm. put it on the back burner and, and leave it aside. Yeah. Well, the solution we think found to cope with that situation mm. is to let the market tell us. And what does that mean? Well, it brings us to the subject, why do we trade short term? Mm. And the reason is, if I trade short term and in a week's time I get like 10 bits of information 
telling me this is going normal. I'm having five winning trades and five losing trades. And overall, I'm making a bit of money. Mm -hmm. I'm happy. It's in line with what I see normally. Mm. But if I trade only five or ten times a year and I have to wait a year to receive that same amount of information, well, a year has gone by. Mm. And maybe I've been suffering from a drawdown since uh, April of this year. And here we are in December, eight months later, let's assume, and I'm still collecting this information. Mm. If I'm trading short term, this feedback, which is given by the market and by, of course, the result of the trading that we have been doing, will allow us to extract some very valuable information in terms of, well, this model in the current market environment apparently doesn't work very well, mm -hmm. or this one is doing okay. So what can we do about it, and how can we use it? Well, the answer is pretty simple. In our case, and I just speak from my own sure. experience, if we have like in this what we call a library, a library more than 50 different models, trading right. models, we could say, well, we don't know which is the best model at what time to, to use in which market. So which model are we going to employ for what market? The honest answer is, no one knows. Right. It could be this one, and we could be lucky, or we could have some bad luck. The, the short answer is we don't know. Mm. So we could say, let's play this in a very naive fashion and employ them all across all markets. That would be not very efficient in terms of capital employment. Mm. So what do we do? We say, well, we know how these models perform in a certain market environment. Mm. We, we don't know what the market is going to bring and how the market is going to evolve. However, if we have this model which is delivering and generating a lot of trades, as a consequence, delivering a lot of information in terms of the performance is good or bad, mediocre, average, extremely good or bad, mm. we will very quickly know from the prices, from the trades that we get back from the real market, if this model is fitted to the current market environment sure. or not. Sure. So we can actually then filter, and the filtering is done automatically, and say, well, it's comparable to a fund of fund manager. And mm. I say, well, I'm having 50-plus managers to pick from. I assign them on all of them, but I'm not going to invest all my money with all 50. Sure. I'll just take these 10, 15, 20 managers, which are doing great in the current environment, and they all trade a lot. So we'll very quickly see that these managers are uh, slipping away, losing performance, or doing great. And provided there is some kind of short-term uh, feedback from what they are doing, I will be able to tell, well, this manager is now suffering. This is obviously a very difficult environment for this manager or for this trading system, to go back to my other example. Yeah. And I will know that I should allocate less capital to that strategy. So if we see clearly that a mean reverting strategy or a contrarian investment approach would suffer if the market is trending, well, very quickly we will be, get, we will be getting as a feedback from the market and the trading results, very poor results. Mm -hmm. So we should disallocate, so actually take away capital from that approach. And the trend-following counterpart would flourish, would have some, some great returns, and of course it will be... Uh, it will be given more capital to trade with. So if you have this library of, say, different approaches, which all of them would never work well at the same time, sure. but 
a significant portion would be doing a reasonable job. Some of them would really do a very good job and others would really suffer. You, after a while, after a while, and that means getting enough information in terms of recent trades, get a very good feeling and indication what is working, but more importantly, what is not working. And then you don't have to filter, you actually employ the market's own information in terms of composing the portfolio. Right. So to, to, to distill it down, we're talking about diversification in terms of types of models and a dynamic filtering that ha that takes place based on recent profitability of each market model um, uh, combination and then it's an automatic deleveraging of a certain market model when profitability goes down but I assume it's also an automatic re-leveraging or up-leveraging uh, of allocation once it starts making money again. Absolutely. It's actually a three-step approach as we describe it. So the first step is actually the most critical one. It's the one what people describe as how to avoid the black swan. Okay. So how can we make sure that we never have this big drawdown we are so afraid of, this 25% drawdown? We would like to keep it in the single digits because right. we know how hard it is with our trading approach to get out of it. Okay. So we have to make sure that all positions are at all times hedged so that we avoid this, this black swan situation. In other words, we focus on loss prevention and not so much on avoid volatility. We can live with volatility provided it's good volatility, say it's volatility to the upside, but we have to avoid digging a very deep hole. So loss prevention happens via hard stops in the markets? Well, actually, the ultimate stops, as we call it, are options. Because we can have hard stops in the market, even in the forex market, where there is uh, ample liquidity, where we see trillions of dollars being traded. And we could say, well, if we have a stop there, we are never going to get slippage, or we wouldn't get slipped a lot. However, we don't know. Mm -hmm. If there is suddenly some bad news coming out, and it could be some geopolitical event or whatever, the euro could drop 100 points. Last week on the Thursday, when Draghi started talking, the euro tumbled 200 pips mm. in like 15 minutes. Mm. So you could have stops, the market will just gap through it. So it doesn't work. Same thing, if you have a hard stop and the market is closed, next morning it opens way beyond the stop, it's not effective either. So what you need to do is either only trade when the market is open and have a protective offsetting hedge against it, which is by doing positions or setting up positions using options where you know that if the market is going to tumble, say, in the extreme case to zero, let's assume the S&P drops from 2,000 to zero. <laughs> if you have a 1975 put option sure. and you're now long the market, you're not going to lose more than maximum 25 points if the S&P is at 2,000. Sure. So you know that for sure. So that's like the ultimate 24-7 stop without slippage. Yeah. Of course, you pay a price for that, and that's the hedge. That's the cost of hedging. But to the extent you can recuperate that, you can finance that by doing some other strategies, which, of course, will bring in some other types of risk. You will be able to finance that partially, if not completely, and you're safe and avoid the black swan. And only when you have done that step, what I call the capital preservation, you move to the next one, which is the portfolio construction. And then you have to use a diversification. 
where you're not focusing on correlation, you're not focusing on covariance, because as everyone knows, <laughs> these things change over time. So it's now very lowly correlated, then it's highly correlated when there is a crash, every correlation goes to one, so it's of no use, and so on. So you focus on effective diversification, which means you have to diversify across markets. That's fine. Most people do that. You have to diversify across trading approaches. Not all people do that, but most people do that. But thirdly, you have to diversify across time. And that's, I think, the best. That's like a, a free lunch when you say, well, I'm trading the euro, but not only on an intra-week basis, also on an intra-day basis, mm -hmm. even on an intra-hour basis, if needed. And so then you see different patterns, different trends, which are not available on the longer-term time frame, but may be available on the very short-term time frame. And so you can play some games within the same instrument, within the same market, using different time frames at the same time. Mm -hmm. And that's true diversification. Mm. And then you have the allocation third element, which uh, you pointed to, which is, well, you wisely monitor the real-time performance and disallocate or deleverage or re-leverage when the, the opportunity is there. And so you have this position sizing, which is, of course, uh, bringing us to the to the Kairos. Yes, I know. I, I want to exactly. go there. Sure, I want to go there, but I want to... I want to understand this a little bit better. So essentially what you're saying is that you might be long futures in the S&P for one of your models. Mm -hmm. You might even be long the S&P for three different models with three different timeframes. Exactly. But if you're long three different positions essentially in the S&P, you would have to buy, uh, as a minimum, you would have to buy puts for those models in the same market. And then you say on top of that, you might finance that through another type of, of structure of the options. So I'm just thinking here, and, and I'm probably wrong in my assumption, but I'd love to hear your comment. That's a pretty complicated position to manage because that, especially in the light, the fact that it's short term. So you have three or four different legs in one market, or, or should I say uh, entry points in a market, and then you've hedged that uh, with a, a, a number of different types of, of, of options. Is that correctly understood? That is very correctly understood. Okay. And I have to qualify that a little bit, <laughs> and it has to do with the fact that we are not trading the same time frame for the hedges and the ah. directional position. Okay. So, so you, you don't have to take it on and off at the same time? Definitely not. Right. So you take advantage of this huge advantage in the options market, which is there for everyone and available at all times, which is theta, so time erosion, which basically implies that if you buy a long-term option, which is expiring, say, in, in two months, it's not, not going to be twice as expensive as the one-month option. It's much cheaper. Mm. It's going to be cheaper than two times the one-month option. So the longer you buy the hedge, relatively speaking, the cheaper it will become on a per-day basis. Mm. So if you know that you are trading a lot to the long side in a specific market environment with a specific model that is, say, taking long trades, and you have this model being active, mm. and it will, be, it will be generating trades on a regular basis, well... If the market is showing this directional trend to the upside and you have this hedge in place, mm. which, is be there, which is going to be there for several weeks, if not longer, the hedge is not going to be extremely 
costly, not extremely expensive. Moreover, you don't need to do that with simply buying a put option. You could do something slightly more sophisticated with a put spread or a butterfly where you will basically be taking in some premium and hedging the first 5% drop. And you have to make some assumptions, which is, of course, an assumption that the market is not going to fall more than 5% in a day, which it hardly does. Mm. Nevertheless, you can then hedge at a more efficient cost and at the same time put on some short-term financing strategies, which could be in the shape of call spreads that you are selling against it, say, 3 4% above the market. And then you have, indeed, a pretty complex structure at first sight, but it boils down to a pretty simple synthetic derivative. If, as you, as you definitely know, if you buy simply the stock mm. and you have at the same time a put option against it, you could replace that by simply buying a call option. It's exactly synthetically the same thing. Mm. And vice versa, if you play with this relationship between calls and puts and the stock or the underlying, you can say, well, I'm not going to go along the underlying itself. I'm going to do this via a long call and shorting a put option. Mm. And so you can create this synthetically equivalent position in a much more efficient way. Mm. And so you don't have to take the hedges on and off and would create transaction costs because, as you know, the bid-ask spread is much wider on these options than on the futures or on the spot market. So it would be a very costly uh, thing to do. While if you make sure that the hedges are in place and will be there, you don't need to trade in and out of them at all times. What you can do is put some short-term financing structures on top of it but that's going to be much less intense. Mm. So the position itself doesn't become too too dramatically complex. It's going to be a long position with some caps on it. And it basically can be described as, okay, we are long the market, but we're not going to profit till uh, till infinity. We have a cap of, say, I don't know, 3%, 5%, 6%, 1.5%, who knows, Mm. Mm. which is going to be capping the performance. And we do that capping on purpose because we know that, realistically speaking, the market is not going to advance 3% in a day. So let's try to exploit that and use that to finance some of the hedging that we need in case the market doesn't do what we hope, in this case, go up, but rather goes down. Mm. Do you have a time stop on all your positions? And I don't mean the hedges here, I mean the the actual positions. The time stop in the currencies is actually an intra-week. So... If it's Friday evening like it is now, Mm. we have no more positions in terms of the currencies. Why? Because the currencies, if you would start buying these options, it would become too expensive. Mm. So the trades are taken off the books and reinitiated on the Monday or the next business day, provided the environment is still similar. So there is a time stop, but it's a very long one, say, an intra-week. So the longest trade we could have in a directional trade in in the currency markets, like in DPI, would be entering on the Monday morning and exiting Mm. on the Friday evening. But that's like truly exceptional because the tight stops will usually take us out way beforehand. Sure, sure, sure. Tell me a little bit about the structure of the model, so to speak. What what kind of models do you, because that's obviously uh, an important point. We talked about it before, the diversification part of it. So what kind of, so obviously trend following, short-term trend following seems yeah. to be an obvious one. 
um, short-term mean reversion seems to be an obvious one. Absolutely. Um, what else have you come up with in terms of sort of concepts that you feel replicate themselves or repeat themselves over and over again? Mm -hmm. I think two other categories or two other classes of models can be can be mentioned. And one has to do with what we call pattern recognition. Mm -hmm. So something which is known by most people, and let me maybe give an example to sure. clarify or like, try to clarify yeah, this. Definitely. So everyone is familiar with this concept of what they call the round number magnets. Mm -hmm. So in the in the currency market, just to, to give one example, if the euro dollar is trading around 130, that's a big number. Yeah. So if it's trading through that number that's psychologically speaking quite a shock mm. when on that thursday when draghi was talking the market fell from 130 150 to below 130 on the news i happened to be in rome that day i saw it that the euro was soto 130 i said wow my italian is not very good but i understood <laughs> it was below 130 so something shocked the people and said this is worth mentioning this 130 is a round number it's like a magnet mm. and so the same thing happens on an intraday basis when the market is trading so like now between 1.2950 and 130 so the market is like kept within these ranges mm. and when it's close to that round number it's like a magnet it acts like a magnet it attracts attention people will be clustering orders around that number It's like if I'm long now and the market is now trading 129.55, I see, mm -hmm. and I'm long in euro against the dollar, well, I know a lot of people are going to sell it when it's going to be at 130 or even just in front of it. Sure. So what, what will happen? Well, just before we reach that 130, that round number magnet, a lot of sell orders will start to kick in and it will be very tough relatively speaking, for the market to go beyond that 130 level. Mm -hmm. It's like a serious hurdle. So what you can do is, when it reaches that level or comes close to it, be prepared to go short. Of course, not blindly shorting it because the market, because of some event, say Draghi talking again, sure. could blow it through the level without any, without any problem. But if no news event is coming out and the market is hesitant and hesitating at that level and then rolls over and starts to come back down, you would be ready to go short. And then it revisits probably the 129.50 or even the 129, the figure. So it's like trading between these levels. So these kind of magnets, they are there in the market. People are aware of it, but you can easily exploit it. And you can exploit it by using some common sense where you say, well, If I'm going to take profits and my system says, normally speaking, without any adjustment, you should take profits at 130.02, well, that's probably going to be tough to reach. It's probably going to be <laughs> much easier to reach 129.93 yeah. or 129.95. So we'll simply reduce the potential profit target to 129.93. And the model does that automatically, sure. which will actually increase the number of winning trades and give up, of course, like seven pips or 10 pips. Uh, but of course, we'll increase the, the probability of reaching that smaller target. Sure. Sure. Same time with the stops. So you don't put a stop just above the round number, say at 129.05. You would put it at 128.93, mm. for example. So the market has to drop below the 129 serious support or what people suppose would be serious and substantial significant sure. support. And that will actually protect your position slightly longer. It will cost more money if it goes through it. But at least you know it's going to be less likely to get hit 
And these kind of things can be incorporated into an algorithm. Mm -hmm. And when you develop such an algorithm, then you can actually test it and see, is there some value in doing that? Does it really, is it worth the price of giving up, say, 10 pips in profit target and making my stop like 10 pips wider? Does it work? And you can test it out. And if it does, you can build it into a strategy. So these kind of patterns is what we call pattern recognition. And I gave the example of the round number because it's a, a sure. well-known feature. That's something which we would categorize as one type of trading approaches. And then the, the fourth one, apart from the mean reverting and the trend following and mm -hmm. this pattern recognition, is what we call volatility risk premium strategies. Mm -hmm. And it's all of the option world where we say, well, in the options, we can we have a very difficult time trying to follow the prices because there are so many options on the same instrument across time, across strikes, and so on. It's a very highly leveraged instrument. It's non-linear. It moves like crazy. So we have to be able to slow it down somewhat, somehow. And the way we slow it down is actually by no longer looking at the price of the option, but by looking at its implied volatility. Mm. So we look at volatility and we trade only volatility. And we can't really predict price, and I think very few people can do that. Mm. But we can measure, and once we've measured it, we can actually interpret and then predict volatility. So that we don't need to know what way the market is going, but rather how far the market may go. In what direction, we don't know, but actually we don't care because we're like indifferent in terms of going up or going down in terms of the market's range. It's more the range that we're interested in rather than the direction. And so we can then play volatility strategies, which will actually be based on the notion, okay, we think that we can measure volatility as it is now, we can interpret it and say, well, this is a relatively low volatility compared to what we think it should be. So the implied volatility as measured by the market is very obvious to, to measure. And then we can compare that to what we think is a reasonable, a logical volatility level. And if there is a big discrepancy, sufficiently big discrepancy between the two, then we can put on a trade. Mm. And that's something which has been working, I think, if there is one strategy which hasn't suffered from this decay, right. which I think all strategies suffer from, mm -hmm. well, this may be a small exception to the rule. And that is this continuous high implied volatility over the true realistic and realized volatility. Mm -hmm. You have this premium, which is actually logical if you think about it. Mm -hmm. People are scared for the, sure. the market moving down, so they're buy up these put prices yeah. and at the same time they need to finance them and they do that by selling calls. So they drive the prices of the calls down, hence the implied volatility comes off and they drive the prices of the puts up, hence the, the implied volatility goes higher and it creates this, what people call this famous skew. Mm. And so you can play that game by saying, well, I can now buy cheap volatility and sell slightly higher volatility and structure positions which are like initially, at least initially, market neutral or delta neutral, but then start to move because the market is not going to sit still, although we would prefer it. But as soon as it starts to move, you can basically then start to adjust the hedges. And by doing that volatility uh, risk premium strategy, I think we, we covered the, the most important source of our, of our profit center, our return drivers, because it's something which is relatively stable. It's not too difficult to 
predict and it's uh, relatively persistent mm. it's very unlikely and it's and it's not very it's not a very long duration that you have this phenomenon that realized for true volatility is higher than the implied right. it may spike during a couple of days even weeks like in 2008 sure. 2011 <laughs> it happened a couple of times but it's mean reverting so we have this very well-known uh, characteristics of volatility it is clustering mm-hmm. it is persistent but of course it can be spiky occasionally mm-hmm. but not for a long time because it's mean reverting mm-hmm. and knowing that you can exploit it and mm-hmm. build a program around that and that's what we try to do sure. it's 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 fascinating Luke. i have one question though how do you test a model that at the same time might trigger a position in say the futures markets but at the same time you also have to account for the fact that you may then at the exact same time if you want to do it precisely have to put on a uh, a hedge in the mm-hmm. options markets mm-hmm. i mean clearly this can be done but i'm just curious i mean how do you actually make something uh, accurate when you have so many moving parts in 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 something that could be uh, very small time frames that's a true challenge and it, it starts actually with the biggest component which i think few people pay enough attention to and that's the the quality of the data right we spent a lot of time making sure that the data we are using for the research is of good quality so we people say well you spent way too much time <laughs> cleaning these data checking them out making sure that the data are valid. You say, well, they come from the exchange, they should be fine. Hmm. Well, you still would see some outprices, some very bad ticks, and they will totally uh, create problems if you program it and just uh, blindly apply it. Hmm. So you have to start with the data component, and if the data is good, and everyone knows the garbage in, garbage out statement, right. well, if the data is bad, you can't expect to have something like a reliable strategy in the first place. Mm. So once you have clean data and you have a pretty stable set of historical tick-by-tick data, and we and we bought data initially in, 19, in the 1990s mm. and then started building this huge, gigantic tick-by-tick database, which we need. Why? Because we need to be able to test on an intraday basis, on a tick-by-tick basis, how the market evolved during the day it's not enough to know the market opened at 100 and closed at 102 fine we're up well if the stop was at 98 the market dipped to 95 unfortunately we were kicked out Mm -hmm. and we had a loss not a profit so we need this tick by tick uh, pattern because it's a very path dependent story so if we test these various models we look at them as individual singular components So we don't say, well, at this point in time, what's happening across the portfolio? We will look at each individual component and say, well, in this system, which is active on the S&P, we have to go along. What is the stop? What is the target? That's one thing. Mm. But the hedges are there because we know that if volatility spikes, we will do this or we will do that. So the hedges will not so much be triggered by the opening of a position, right. but will be there. So it's not a one-to-one match. Okay. So it's not what people would call a perfect hedge. It's not, okay, we buy one S&P future, one E-mini contract, so we should put on an option spread, which is having the exact same delta okay. as that. So it's not a perfect hedge, sure. Sure. which it can't be, I think, because the delta 
by definition is changing and the delta is very much dependent of your input. So if you have a different view than I have in terms of what is current volatility, your calculation of the delta will be different. Hence, your hedge is going to be different. Mm -hmm. So it's impossible to say, well, if two people look at the same screen and look at the same position, they will determine the exact same hedge. It's not the case because the deltas will be different. Mm -hmm. Tell me about position sizing. I know that's a very integral part of Kairos, but it's probably something that is important to you uh, in, in general. Why is position sizing so critical and why is it often an underestimated component of a trading system? Mm -hmm. I think for us, it has become by far the most important component. Mm. And the reason is that everyone, and there is really no exception that I can imagine, that there is really not a single investor who shouldn't care about it. I mean, the trader usually knows about it or realizes that after the fact, when he has a good trade, he says, well, my size was really too small. I should have put on a bigger trade. <laughs> If it's a better, he says, well, my trade was way too big. If only I had half the position, I would have been able to stomach the loss much mm. easier. So it is an eternal thing to do. Now, the good thing about it is it's the only element within the investment process that you can truly control. Mm. Because all the others, I mean, how big the move in the market is going to be, how much profit you're going to make, how volatile the market is going to be, we can estimate it and hope for the best. But at the end of the day, we don't know and no one knows. While this one is one really critical element which we can control. So if you have this position sizing, which allows you to say, well, if everything goes to zero, across the board, what am I down? Well, I, it depends obviously on my investment in the market. If I'm with a $1 million portfolio, I'm only invested 100,000. Even if the market goes to zero, I can be down no more than 100,000. So it's a 10% maximum risk. If, however, I would be leveraged, I would have positions for two million. Well, I could be down not one million, but two, but down two million. So not only would I have lost my one million investment, I would own the prime broker an additional one million. Mm. So this leverage or deleveraging can be critical in determining the the risk and return of the portfolio. Now, what is even better is that it's and of course it's neatly linked to option theory where you say, well, I can actually simulate a position in the market by using a fraction of the stock, a fraction of the underlying. And it's, of course, the delta, as we, as we mentioned earlier. Sure. You say, well, if this market is going to go up, my option is going to go up by the delta. Well, we can do the equivalent or turn it the other way around to say, well, instead of buying that position, we will be buying a fraction of the position that we hope to acquire. And if the market goes well, According as our, to our expectations, we will increase the size. If, however, the market is going to come down, we're going to do the exact opposite and decrease the position. Mm. With the options, it's done automatically because the delta is going to go down when it's going away or in the, in the, sure. the opposite uh, direction. Yeah. And on the other hand, if the market is increasing, the delta will follow its way. Mm. So with Kairos, we say, well, let's take this one step further and say... Let's use a portfolio of very different assets. So we could use fixed income elements. We could use uh, real estate. 
ETFs. We're using mainly ETFs there. Sure. Uh, we can use uh, the equity markets in the emerging markets in the Europe and the Far East, in the US, small cap, large cap. Uh, we, could, we could dream of whatever. We could use even volatility indexes. We could use oil and energy. We could use gold, whatever. We combine it into a wide cross-asset solution. Mm-hmm. So we say, well, let's take 8, 10, 12 different assets or groups of ETFs, which combined make a very nice and cover the global, call it investment spectrum. Now, how much do we, should we invest in each of them? We could say, well, uh, we all know that the equity returns are going to be superior in the long run compared to the fixed income, so we should invest more. Well, depends on the risk. If we can have half the return, but only at a quarter of the risk, we should actually favor the one with the lower return. Sure. And so we can normalize it across risk. So we can build this portfolio and we can say, well, what happens if the market goes up? What should we do if the market goes down? And by simulating that, we can come up with an algorithm that will automatically tell us what is like now at this point in time, not in the future, not yesterday, but now the best position to be in, Mm. given a couple of constraints. And the constraints can be, well, I want the maximum drawdown of this. I want a recovery as fast as possible. So this is a program which is not so much in trying to maximize the probability of having a high return or trying to maximize uh, the avoidance of huge risks. It's more trying to maximize the probability of having a positive return, a positive recurring steady robust performance. Mm. So you don't try to maximize profits. You try to say, well, let's let's try to find a way to replicate something which is like the ideal for an institutional investor, let's say a 6% or an 8% compounded return year after year with hardly any shocks. Mm. So if you can make something which is not going to suffer too dramatically in a down market, which is going to underperform by definition sure. in an up market, well, the client is probably going to like it. Mm-hmm. And we can control the risk because we can control the position sizing. And hence, this is the cornerstone of the strategy. How often do you have to adjust the position sizing to do that? Well, the short answer is it depends. And it depends with the market. If we talk about a volatile instrument, like, for example, the volatility index and Mm. the inverse of it, like the XIF, as it is called, we might have to intervene maybe once or twice a week, a relatively quiet market, such as the fixed income market. Then actually, we could have to intervene maybe once every two weeks or three weeks. Sure. So it is very dependent on the volatility in the market. On average, it is so that we have to trade about once a week on average per market. Okay. So it is reasonable. It's definitely not high frequency. So we talked about Kairos in terms of the position sizing, but what actually determines which way it's investing, where it's allocating the risk uh, in, in the first place? What are the what kind of models? So if we go back to what we talked about before, you know, you can have trend following models, you can have, you know, mean reversion models and so on and so forth. How would you describe the models themselves inside Kairos? Okay, that's a pure volatility driven engine, so to speak. So the only thing which is of, of uh, impact in terms of deciding, shall we put a position on, if so, what's, what direction is going to be determined by volatility. If the market is not showing a lot of volatility, there won't be a lot of trades 
passing through. However, we start with a so-called naive portfolio where we say, well, we need this balance of, say, 8, 10, 12 different ETFs covering a certain spectrum of the market. And we start with a neutral position. A neutral position would be something like a delta 50, say, half long. Mm. So we have like an initial position, which we are willing to, to play with. And from that moment onwards, determined by the volatility in the market, we're going to play like the role of a market maker. When the market is coming down, we may be buying something more. When the market is in moving up a little bit, we may be scaling out a little bit. And so depending on that volatility, there will be some trades triggered. Mm -hmm. So every single component will, first of all, at the very start, have this optimal initial allocation. And that will be like a fraction of the total initial portfolio value. Let's say we have $1 million, we have 10 ETFs. Mm -hmm. We may start with, say, 10% on average in each of the 10. Sure. But then on a daily basis, there will be some targets, upside and downside target levels, and they will be used to rebalance. So mm -hmm. as we delta hedging in the options, we don't need to delta hedge every single tick, every single one-point move in the S&P, but only when a significant change in the delta position is occurring. So we have these rebalancing levels, which are known beforehand, and we know, okay, we don't have to do anything unless at the end of the day, or at a certain price level, we go beyond a certain price. Mm -hmm. Then, of course, we know we have to intervene, we have to decrease or increase the deltas. And so it's very uh, automated, it's extremely transparent, and we know beforehand what we're going to do. So I could tell you now, okay, if the market is going to go below that level, we'll be buying S&Ps or selling S&Ps. Mm -hmm. And that's not going to change in the course of today. It will only on a daily basis be recalculated and then come up with new levels where we have to do something about the ideal position. I wonder, I mean, this to me sounds like Kairos is kind of an end of day type system where you sure. only need to adjust your, your position. But DPI, does that need to be run intraday or is that also you run the system once a day and then you have your levels, you have your stops uh, or whatever type of orders you use? Or is that not possible to do that simply? Well, for Kairos, you're absolutely right. It's a pure end-of-day system, sure, sure. pure end-of-day trading strategy. While with DPI, we have some intraday moves. Okay. And they are, they are dependent on the, on the time series that we're using. And the time series are what, what we call not in, in calendar time. In other words, we don't look at hourly bars. We don't right. look at the bar every five minutes. But it will be bars which are based on volatility. In other words, the more a market moves the bigger the bar will become. And we will collect more prices during a certain interval. In other words, if the market is extremely quiet and in an hour, say in the last 60 minutes, it only trades 50 times, mm. well, we collect these 50 prices, but the market may not have moved a lot. While in the next hour, it may also move 50 times, but make bigger jumps. Hence, we have to express that in a different fashion. So we use these so-called volatility buckets to compare one number of price changes so it's basically a number of price changes that we compare from one period to the next and with that we can very quickly determine if there is a trend change or not and once we do that we have to intervene mm -hmm. so which basically means that it can happen anytime during the day mm -hmm. i mean our trading day and the trading day is very well sure. known it's between eight o'clock and ten o'clock in the evening so yeah. it's a 14 hour period during which something can happen. So we don't trade outside these trading hours. 
we have stops or we have options against the positions in case the position is taken overnight, which it is most of the time, except, of course, over the weekends. But uh, if not, only trades can take place between 8 and 22 hours. But we don't know when they're going to take place. Why are you afraid of the weekends if you have your hedges? Uh, the hedges in the forex are not perfect because okay. the options are too expensive. If we have them in the options market, so on the stock indices, we are not afraid of them there. We take okay. them overnight and we hold positions for like three, four, five weeks. Wow, right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So there it's, it's a different uh, ball game. And then I'm referring to the volatility risk premium. So where we try to extract volatility premia by selling options. So we are short volatility, which is then hedged by buying other options. And these positions are carried overnight and over the weekend. Mm. But in the directional trading in the currencies, we don't do that. Right. We talked a bit about risk management already. So I'm not going to go too much into uh, detail on that. But I wanted to ask you, generally speaking, and you also mentioned that correlations are not necessarily a great way of looking at, at risk and so on and so forth. But in terms of risk management, what would you say is the most important thing investors should look at? What would be a good measure or however we put it that really describes the risk of a strategy and in your case, your strategy mm -hmm. is best possible? Okay. Well, what we use, which is our like in-house uh, measure or risk-return statistic, is what we call the capital at risk ratio. Mm -hmm. And so, what it does is like a simple ratio, a very simple feature. We say, well, what's the net annualized return of this program? And we compare that to the maximum drawdown. So it basically expresses how much return you can generate for every one percent of risk, and the risk being maximum drawdown you take on board. Mm -hmm. So, in other words, if I have a program that makes a 10% return and it has a maximum drawdown of 20%, that capital at risk ratio is 0.5. If I have another one which has a 5% return, but it has a maximum drawdown of also 5%, it's a one-to-one -one capital at risk ratio, which is quite attractive. Mm -hmm. So, that's one uh, fundamental ratio which is used in designing and evaluating a trading strategy. But... Two others, which few people I think are using, is what we say, well, what is the probability that an account is still below the starting level after a certain period of time? Mm. And so that depends on the investor, but an investor could say, well, if I start today, how likely is it that I'm in profit in 12 months' time mm. or in 36 months' time? And so if you have a very high value for that, you basically say, well, there is a low probability of seeing an underwater situation after these 12 months or 36 months. And then the third one that we are using, and so these three are like the critical ones, is how quickly do we recover? Because there is nothing as frustrating as making a new high, new investors come in, then the, the performance drops off, and it remains there below that new high for like eternity. And all these new investors that joined in because of the huge or nice performance from, from the previous months, they are sitting underwater and remain there. And they are not 5%, maybe 6, 7, 8% away from the high. And it takes an eternity, first of all, to make a new high. But you also need to realize how much do we drop off from that maximum. So we have a statistic that gives a good indication of the potential for recovery after a drawdown. So... How often do we are, in a situ are we in a situation that is less than X percent of the high? In other words, what we use mostly is 
how many months are actually within 5% of the high, the mm -hmm. previous high. Mm -hmm. So when we see that on this Kairos program, for example, in 90% of cases, if you look at the end of month result, mm -hmm. we are within 5% of the previous high. So it means that only in 95% in of cases will we be further than 5% away. So the 10% is actually indicative of how likely it is that we make a serious drop. Sure. Clearly, these statistics are based on long-term simulation and long-term sure. real trading. How far back do you feel you need to go in order to get confident that those numbers will stick? And the reason I ask you is that mm -hmm. trend followers, for example, which is you know a strategy that has been around for a long time so there is some 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 historic data that can be uh, you know gleaned from and um, clearly the drawdown profile of some of these strategies changed in the last couple of years the drawdowns became longer they became deeper but you wouldn't have suspected that if going into say 2010 everything looked normal how do you get confident that those kind of statistics won't change Okay. Well, it's really a question, in my opinion, of how frequently do you see this system generating trading signals? Right. If it's a high-frequency trading system like, like we don't employ, mm. which might, say, fire signals a hundred times a day, right. you would only need maybe a couple of weeks to have a vast amount of data which you can look at and say, well, this is the profile of the system. Mm. If you have on the other extreme of the curve a trend follower, a long-term trend follower, sure. he might need 10 years to have a, a reasonable idea in terms of what is valuable. For us, it's like in between. If you have like three to five years of back-tested data on a new trading idea, right. and we have enough trades going through during that period, let's say that we have like 100 trades at least a year, then we can with, say, 500 trades have a pretty good idea of what we have to confront and what we are likely to, to see in the near future, hmm. provided the market doesn't change, of course. Yeah, yeah. Now, on a day-to-day -day basis, is there any risk measure where you say uh, that you use on a daily basis saying, yeah, this is a risk number that I look at and uh, that's important to me? Because again, these numbers that you're referring to, they're not going to change on a daily basis. But in order to look at what is my risk right now, here and now, is there anything there you, you, you like, you found useful? Well, what we have developed and integrated in all of the strategies is a, conce a concept which we call MEXT. It's maximum exposure per trade, so M-E-X-T. Okay. And maximum exposure per trade determines upfront, upfront the maximum risk that a trade can generate for the total portfolio. Okay. So even if we come to the worst-to-worst -worst case, the thing may lose 0.1% responsible and caused by this one single trade so that mixed for that specific trade let's assume is 0.1 percent so we also have apart from this mixed which is maximum exposure per trade also a maximum exposure per day where we say well we don't want to see a day where we are down eight percent or down five percent or down three percent no we cap it at for example one percent so even if all the positions that we have currently go to their stop losses, are being kicked out, uh, really turn out to be in the worst possible trading environment, you would be down 1%. Okay. So that's like a maximum exposure per day. So we look at that statistic, and that's again fed into the model to determine the optimal trading size. Mm. So if we know that 
we have only two systems, let's assume, one in the S&P and one in the euro, and the stops are, say, $1,000 each, and we don't want to lose more than 10000 well, we know what the position can be as sure. a maximum. Sure. And we know, okay, if you're getting stopped out and we won't take a second trade in the or a following trade in these two models, well, that will be actually the drawdown we can expect as a maximum. And so we have that on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on a monthly basis, and even on a yearly basis. Like many pension funds, and that has been my experience, say, for at least 10 years, they say, well, this IMA, this, uh, this management agreement, will basically stipulate if you see a drawdown of X percent, and the X could be, in our case, like 5% or 10%, if you exceed that, then we have to talk again. If we see the 5% drop, from peak to trough, then we have to have a conversation. We won't stop the trading, but that is considered a significant uh, red alert for us to take action. And if, God forbid, at one point in time, it would be down 10%, let's assume, we would stop trading automatically. So you have this built-in, like a circuit breaker on, on, the, on the futures market, where it will basically would stop trading. And pension funds especially, they say, well, we have these potential liabilities. We don't really want to see a situation where the assets are going down by more than X percent. And knowing that up front and building that into the model, we can be confident that we are not going to go beyond that level, which, of course, would mean that we would trade smaller and smaller size the closer we would be approaching that, mm -hmm. which is like, again, as, as people do in, in option trading, which is the, the Delta equivalent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean it, it. I mean it's very it's fascinating because I'm I'm looking at some numbers. You have a nice comparison with all the short-term managers in your material, and obviously, mm -hmm. uh, I'm not entirely sure though. I would say that your numbers are over the same time span as the other ones because I, I do seem to to see that there are some drawdowns that are quite large with other managers compared to yours. And I, I'm not entirely sure whether it's from lifetime of the program and, and, and to date uh, and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. But that's kind of besides the point because, <laughs> you know, I have this section that I tend to ask uh, my guests about, which is the drawdowns, which you so eloquently described, how a 5% drawdown for you is, 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 is really uncomfortable than a 10% is, you know, God forbid that should happen. Now, mm. clearly these things are not something that most uh, certainly in the trend-following world would worry about. Um, uh, so, so I'm just, and, and so I was going to ask you, um, you know, how you cope with the emotional roller coaster about drawdowns, but I'm not sure there are any emotions just from a 5% drawdown at all. Well, I think that's very personal in, to that extent that some people feel like uh, shell-shocked when they are down 10%, yeah. and other people, they wouldn't blink an eye when they are down 10%. Yeah. So it's very subjective. In my case, I'm a rather risk-averse person, I think, in terms of trading, and there I say, well, if I can avoid this single-digit drawdown from becoming a double-digit drawdown, I feel at ease and I feel comfortable. I'm not panicking when we are down 5%. Of course, I wouldn't like it. but No one would like it when he's down 5%, I think, but it's nothing to worry about, if that is to be expected. If my program says, well, you're not going to see a 2% drawdown, which would be kind of uh, unrealistic, I think, and then you would see a 5%, then something is wrong. Same By the same example, if I would be confronting a 20% drawdown, something is very wrong. 
while if I would be trading in a different in a different environment with different trading systems, but it is like not totally unthinkable to be down 20% and still be up for the year, then there is nothing to worry about. But it's a very subjective thing. And in our case, on the one risk unit, so the standard version, like a 5%, 8% drawdown is like the norm. And that's what we considered, what would be considered normal. Other people would have a much higher expected return. And of course, goes hand in hand with that, a much higher expected maximum drawdown. You mentioned a couple of times that you're a risk-averse person. Where does that come from? Well, then I don't know, frankly. I think it's it's really, I'm not, it has to do with probably my, call it uh, quantitative background, where I know that, as I, I hinted to it, I think, earlier in our talk, when the drawdowns become too difficult and too big, it becomes nearly impossible, virtually impossible, and mathematically extremely unlikely to even recover from that from that drawdown. So in other words, if you have a, a system where you're counting on making, say, between 5 and 10%, and suddenly you're now facing a drawdown of, say, 30%, it's going to be taking a long time before you're recovering from the drawdown, given the distribution of returns where you can have an up year or a down year. So you need too long a period for people to remain patient and, and be confident in the program that you will be recovering. So I try to avoid it, avoiding that problem by just avoiding a big drawdown in the first place. Sure. So that's, I think, my, my logical, uh, not so emotional reasoning behind it. Secondly, I think, emotionally speaking, I'm not the type of trader who is comfortable taking very big swings. I wouldn't want to trade a couple of instruments only and bet the whole portfolio on a couple of trades. That's not my trading style because I believe in diversification, as I said, across markets, across instruments, and also across timeframes. So it goes without saying that I need a lot of different positions at the same time to be comfortable in a fully invested portfolio. You clearly run a very advanced strategy and you've certainly thought a lot about it and you are you know keep a very close eye on the risk management no doubt that's clear from our conversation and you've done a lot i think to hedge the risks uh, and so on and so forth but what keeps you awake at night and i don't mean weekends because i think you probably sleep pretty well at weekends <laughs> with no positions yeah. on so what keeps you awake at night what kind of risk is still there that you simply can't avoid? What, what kind of risk is there in your strategy that, that um, still keeps you pondering about how to do it? Well, I think uh, I could maybe rephrase the question a little okay, bit. Okay, sure. Why, why you, you, could, you could, by the same token, maybe ask me, why are you still researching for other trading ideas? So let me ask you that. Why are you still researching <laughs> for other ideas? Well, I think it has to do with the fact that you always try to improve someone who is trading for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, whatever, is definitely driven by this, is passionate about it, is keen on continually improving because you realize that these systems have a certain relatively limited life so you need to keep up with the research, markets are changing, systems are performing less than before, so you need to replace them. So that's an ongoing process. So the fact that it is such a challenging 
environment to work in and to come up with new trading ideas, test something out, see if this works under this and under that environment is so fascinating mm -hmm. that that would be the thing that would keep me awake. So that's why I would be reading books and articles about sometimes vaguely related matters, but still having indirectly an influence on trying to come up with a new trading system with the ultimate idea of trying to build a better risk-adjusted return. It comes down to that. Sure. Where do you get your ideas from? Well, the, the short answer is reading and, and reading a lot, I think, okay. and listening to a lot of sources. And that can be something related to, say, on the one hand, uh, uh, binary crosswords and, and puzzles, mm. where you get new combinations, so ideas from. And it could be reading about uh, something in, in geometry, or it could be something about uh, logic. Uh, it could be anything. So it's, it's really a question of, trying to be very, I think, open-minded or trying to be very open-minded in absorbing new information of which you may not realize, at least I don't realize, upfront this could be useful or this could be worthwhile studying or looking into further and maybe without subconsciously maybe you, you realize or you don't realize that it could be integrated into a, the building of a new trading idea. You mentioned in your information that I uh, had a chance to look at that I guess we all look for the Holy Grail. And it would appear to me that you found something after 20 years of research where you feel you're getting closer at least. Is that a fair statement? Do you think you found something that combined is close to the optimal? And if so... Is there a chance that we can actually end up doing too much research because you already found what works? Yeah, I think uh, what I think I'm, I found is something which is achievable, which is realistic. Because mm. every trader who has been active for a certain period of time must realize that the so-called holy grail probably doesn't exist, or not in the sense that people describe it. Mm. But I think something which can be realistic and which is achievable well, that can be found, and I think everyone can find that. Mm. But it's a question of trying to find the balance between what kind of risk am I willing to absorb and what kind of time frame am I allowing for this trading system to, to work so that it can perform. Mm. And so the trading idea, which is actually at the heart of Kairos, is something I started playing with. And believe it or not, it's probably like 20 years ago mm. when I had this idea like, okay, if I can do this, and I combine A with B and C, this would be like the ultimate solution. And there is no way you could not lose, not, not make money. So mm -hmm. you're going to make money at all times. But there were two very annoying qualifiers to that. <laughs> and the one, the first one was, well, you need a lot of money. Actually, you need an unlimited amount of money. So no one has it, that's clear. And then the second one, which I think is even tougher, is you need an unlimited amount of time. Right. So if you have unlimited time and unlimited money, then first of all, you could ask the question, well, why do it? <laughs> you have what you need, you have unlimited time and unlimited capital, so why even trade? Sure. But let's assume that you want to make something and you have at your disposal this vast uh, treasury of capital and uh, a huge amount of time, let's say five years, 10 years to trade mm -hmm. and to prove that something works. Now, if you have that, you can develop some mathematical algorithms which will churn out some profits before trading costs. And that's an important statement, I think. Sure. That will be like guaranteed 
if there is enough volatility. So if there is no volatility, the thing would fall apart. You need some volatility. You need the market to move in order to make profits on the way up or on the way down. But say, assuming volatility is there and you don't need to trade it in one single market, you could build a portfolio of maybe five or even 10 different instruments, which are, let's say, lowly correlated to the extent these correlations hold up for the time being. Well, now you have this portfolio of different instruments. They each move at a certain speed during the, during the weeks, during the months of the year. And some of them will be going up, some of them will be going down, some of them will not move that much. Still, you will be able to extract some information and some value from that price movement. Mm -hmm. Now, if you don't have that unlimited capital, you need something to basically protect the capital that you have, which is in essence some stop losses. Mm -hmm. At a certain point in time, you need to say, well, in this one component out of the five or out of the ten, I need to take my losses. This is too much. I started off with a position of X, and now it has even increased in size, or it's still the same, it doesn't matter, but I'm down so much, it has too severe an impact on the total portfolio. So I need to do something about it. Actually, I'm going to take the position of the books. Hmm. So you need to build that into the algorithm. That's the first step. And then secondly, the time, if there is enough time, and by time I mean several months, several years, then you can come up with something which will show enough volatility that there is the possibility to create and generate these returns. Mm -hmm. So you combine that all, and now you have a portfolio of maybe, say, five, ten different instruments, and you say, well, I'm going to trade them according to a certain algorithm. I will take losses if such and such a situation occurs, and it will be painful. I may be down 10%, could be, but... That's part of the game. But in exchange for that 10% maximum risk I'm going mm. to take, we're talking here about a capped risk, well, I can probably count on making X percent. And if that X is high enough for the risk you're willing to absorb if the worst, can, worst case scenario appears or comes around the corner, then you are in good shape. And then you could say, well, this is something I could trade with a lot of confidence, with a lot of faith, and uh, that's, for me, I think, close enough to a holy grail. Because right. then you know, I have my risk capped. I have probably also my profits capped, but they are capped at such a level that I don't mind that they are capped. If they are, like, say, at 15% compounding, that's fair enough, given the risk of, say, 10% or whatever. That's a very nice balance. Mm -hmm. And then I think you have something which is workable, and then maybe one day you could say, well, I don't need to do that much research anymore. <laughs> Sure. I want to move on to the uh, next section, but I'm not going to go into it too much because we've already had uh, a delightful two hours and 20 minutes uh, uh, talking here. Um, but this is just sort of more, it's more about sort of the, the, the business as such. And, and the question is very simple. What's the biggest challenge that you have right now? Well, I think the biggest challenge is to bring this new program, Kairos, which is slightly different from, uh, from the first, from DPI, to bring that to the market and convince people that this is probably, as we described two minutes ago, very close to a potential holy grailish type of investment. Mm -hmm. But you see, well, this has the features that a realistic investor could hope for, like you have capped risk, fine, you can't lose more than X 
and that X can be leveraged. If someone says, well, I'm willing to take a 20% hit in the absolute worst case scenario, but not 20.1, it can be provided. And what is the return I can achieve given a normal volatility in these 10 different markets? Fine, that's it. And bringing that message across and in a way explaining that and trying to, to teach that to people, that's like my biggest challenge, I think, at this point in time. And maybe what I would like to add is the fact that this is contrary to DPI, a more scalable strategy makes it even more intriguing because I think that's after 20 years of research, the first strategy where I don't see a lot of impact from the scaling, I mean, the trading in bigger size than it currently is. Mm -hmm. And which is, of course, opening the doors to a potential for trading this in significant size without hurting the performance as most strategies that we have developed are in a way self-destructive once you trade them in too big a size. Well, this one, I think the impact will be much less and will be affordable. Why do you want to manage more money, Luke? You have a team of two to three people. You have almost $200 million under management. Most people who can do the math, they would say that's a pretty solid business and you have good performance. Why do you want to manage more money? Well, I don't really want to manage much more money. I want to basically uh, show that a system which can be traded in a nearly automated fashion can make money over the years in a pretty regular recurrent fashion. This is something which could be valuable for pension funds, for endowments, for foundations where people count on a relatively regular performance but with capped risk mm. and provided they are willing to sacrifice some of the extraordinary returns which are not going to be available so it's not going to be like a 25% potential return but because you finance that uh, sure. protection mm -hmm. by giving up some of the upside as people know or should realize then you could be in, in a good in a good product yeah but so why uh, it's not my my pure ambition to to raise the assets and the management dramatically. Mm -hmm. But of course, as we have this program and we developed it, and I think it's a very good product, I think it's worth uh, uh, presenting it to the world, so to speak. Sure, sure. Great stuff. I have one more question left in this section, and then we're going to move on to the last one, which is uh, called general and fun. So that uh, that will certainly, uh, <laughs> okay. certainly uh, spark a few interesting things. But let me just ask you one uh, question before we go there. Now, You've been in the game for a very long time. You've answered, I'm sure, many questions from investors. You've filled out endless numbers of due diligence questionnaires. What is the question that investors fail to ask you? Well, that's a very good question. Well, I think we may have touched upon it earlier during the talk when you sure. said, well, do investors look at the track record like this is what I can have if I invest now, right. or should I rather look at, say, the so-called predictability of returns? Mm -hmm. Now, I think, for me, the main thing that people should ask is, what are you going to trade, and how, actually, are you convinced that what you're offering is something which is going to work? Mm. I mean, that is something that few people ask. They say, well, what do you expect to be your return? What's going to be your risk? Things like that. But I think what is really critical is what makes this program unique and why would I have confidence in this program and why do you think this is going to 
solve my problem of finding a good investment. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Now, final section, final stretch. General and fun, let's see. There's a few things to uh, to choose from, but let me just uh, ask you one thing. What do you think it takes today for someone starting out wanting to be a great trader, fund manager? What do you think are some of the personal traits, if I can put it like that, that they need to possess in order to be successful? I think the main characteristic is what people describe as discipline. Mm. So if you are disciplined and you're like, I mean, there are two elements to this to this uh, puzzle, I think, but one has to do with discipline. So you need to be very organized and, and disciplined to, to bring this to a good end. But in order to be able to bring up that discipline, you need to have enough passion to mm. be interested, really intrigued by the markets and not uh, money-wise, but just by the, I think, the intellectual challenge, like how come this is so difficult? Mm. Why are so many thousands of people staring at these same screens <laughs> and is 80% losing money and is uh, 15% breaking even or barely and only 5% make these huge uh, winning trades? How come? Mm. What is what is a secret? So people think that there is a secret, and so you need to be intrigued by that and have some some pure passion for discovering something like that. Mm. So you need to be able to 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 live that market. That's really important to be able to continue to work hard and long hours and and don't consider it as work. I don't consider mm. it as work. That's I think like a condition. Sure. Now this is uh, maybe uh, uh, an easy question uh, for you given the fact that you read so quickly that you that you do um, but what book would you recommend from the probably many books that you have uh, read to people who want to improve their own trading or for investors who want to also take the next step is there any particular book that springs to mind that has made an impression on you and 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 why hmm. i mean i think it is really a question of reading many books about the subject to give like an overview because some things are pretty straightforward for one person and are totally new and revealing to the second person. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult to come up with one book. But I think... I'll allow you two then. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, The Market Wizards is definitely a very good one okay. to give you some insight in what people do to become a good trader mm -hmm. what they do how they approach these markets and sure. how they build their career and their systems and their investment firm mm -hmm. i think that's definitely a good one and the other one which i personally liked a lot and which gave me a lot of inspiration is the book about the prediction company mm -hmm. which has to do with with predicting price and basically showing to me that it's a very tough thing to even try that if these people which were really top-notch Uh, scientists and such a tough time in coming up with something that is really tradable so and and how they ended up as being part of o'connor and later ubs mm. that was a fascinating book for me mm. so these two books actually were for me like eye-openers in terms of well this is something i need to take into account if i want to build this investment company as i want it and and i'm just curious here luke books like that that clearly you know, are important for you. 
Do you still read them as quickly as you do when you do speed reading? <laughs> oh, no, definitely not. I mean, <laughs> speed reading, I hardly do at all. I mean, I'm, uh, I love reading a lot, but I don't speed read unless <laughs> I need to. So let's assume I need to, to go over a, a document and I only have 15 minutes time. Then I would scan over it, but I'm, I can guarantee I don't... <laughs> I'm no longer at half the speed of what I used to be. All right, okay. <laughs> Now, based on everything that you've learned over the last uh, 25 years or so, if you were going to start today, is there anything that you would do different, do you think? Well, I think the main uh, thing that I would uh, do slightly different, but not dramatically different, is having even a bigger focus <laughs> on what you want to do. Like at the very beginning when I started AIM in 1990, mm. well, these four or five clients said, well, can you also look at this market and can right. you also look at that market? And being like a tiny boutique firm, it became like too difficult to spend uh, attention and to pay attention to these different markets and, and trading strategies. And one would like to do, say, uh, fixed income trading and the other one would say well I'd like to do some OTC options on my on my long term US stock portfolio so if you're not focusing uh, as intensely as you should especially at the beginning of the of the building of the business mm. it's going to be very tough mm. so I think it was a good thing that one of our investors said well you really should try to come up build this into a program mm. and instead of just offering call it investment advice and say well i'm an investment manager if you want i can manage your portfolio that's probably not a good approach so mm. build a program and offer that program so that every every single one of your clients has the exact same thing that he's buying from you be it at a different leverage that's a different story but it's the same concept be it in a slightly different format but the concept should be identical and should be highly concentrated sure so That's maybe an error I made in the early years when I was trading too many different things sure. or trying to trade too many different things and focusing on, on too many different subjects. Sure. So sure. I think focus is, is critical. So with, that's probably one thing I should have added to the, the trades next to discipline and passion, sure. maybe focus. Yeah, no, I think that's a, that, uh, that is a good uh, point. And you know, of course, what focus stands for. Tell me. Follow one course until success. <laughs> That's a very good one. <laughs> anyway, two questions left and then, then you're off. Uh, we've already touched upon one thing, which I think is quite interesting, but let me ask you this one anyway. Is there a fun fact that you can share about yourself that people who even know you may not know about you? Hmm. That people who don't know, who know me may not know. Yeah, something, I don't know, it could be a hidden passion, could be something... I don't know, you don't share with so many people and now you're just sharing it with me, of course, and a few well, thousand people. I'm, I'm, pre I'm pretty open, I should say, <laughs> to that extent that people, my friends, they, they know me pretty well, so they know my hobbies, they know my interests, so there is not too much that they don't know, which would surprise them when I, when I told them, well, I'm an avid angler, I like fishing, right. I, I, these kind of things. They say, well, that's something I would never have expected from you, <laughs> so these kind of things. Sure. But uh, my close friends, uh, and not only my close friends, but most people, they know that. So that I am I'm very interested in music. I'm very interested in reading, very interested in, in nature in general. So mm -hmm. these kind of things, uh, I think they are rather well known, I should say. Sure. It helps to keep you 
balanced in in a busy financial world for sure oh absolutely yeah now my last question i said to you earlier today that um you know investors don't always ask the right questions they may even fail to ask some very important questions so i need to be uh, i need to be critical of myself as well so i'm going to sure. ask you what did i miss what was the questions that i should have asked that i didn't or is there something that you think we we haven't quite covered yet you want to add well i think we had a very in-depth interview a very good talk and covered i think what i would have liked to cover going starting with with the history the concepts the philosophy trading philosophy uh, the various programs the risk management i think these are like the key features that people during a say normal due diligence don't even touch upon mm. on touch, on some of them of course they 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 will definitely pay attention to but others they they might forget but i think we covered most of it i don't think you left a lot out <laughs> i think uh, i would be surprised if you left an important question out <laughs> all right okay great stuff now before we finish the conversation though um could you tell our listeners where they can best reach out to you and learn more about capital hedge Oh sure, so they should uh, actually contact my colleague in in Bern in Switzerland. So because the company is based in in just outside Bern in Switzerland, although I'm researching and and uh, and doing all the call it the research ideas from Belgium, I'm in I'm in Switzerland on a regular basis. But they could contact uh, my colleague Bernard Steiner, who's running the the company in uh, Switzerland, and he can be reached at simply bernard at caphedge.com so bernard that's b-e-r-n-h-a-r-d bernhard at caphedge.com fantastic great stuff and let me also say to all the listeners that um you know all of the details from our conversation will of course be in the show notes on the web page uh, which is toptradersonplug.com luke this has been very very interesting it's been fascinating and i really do appreciate your time your openness and um, i think we all learned quite a lot from your uh, experiences so uh, so thank you so much for for sharing this and um, i hope of course that we can catch up uh, at a later stage and hear how things develop and and perhaps learn even more about uh, your strategies and i'll certainly encourage people to to look bernard up and uh, see if they can't uh, reach out to you directly as well so thank you so much it's been a pleasure okay thank you niels it was really a pleasure having this interview and talk with you it's truly inspiring Great really stuff. like it lovely thank you so much take care thank you my pleasure bye bye thanks for listening to top traders unplugged If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.